morning, family. Are you excited about tonight? We're going to have a great time together, so please come. And I think come early enough so you can have good seating. And uh, yeah, it's just going to be a, a great evening together. Um, I, Natasha and myself and uh, our family will be taking a bit of a leave from this coming week. And uh, so for two Sundays, I won't be here with you, but uh, look forward to being with you again on the 25th. I'll see you here. 24th, uh, there is a service at the South if anybody wants to join for, for that also. But the 25th, I will see you here for the Christmas Day service also. Um, so today, I, from my side, and Neil and Pastor Letzolo will still carry on and sharing on this theme, but from my side, I, I want to uh, sort of wrap up my contribution towards our series of Free Indeed, and uh, the title of today's message is to talk about free to serve. Um, Jesus said in uh, Matthew 6, he said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other, or be devoted to the one or, and not to the other. And I think that is a general statement about life. You cannot live in two directions. And remember, we've been speaking about how when we are in sin, we are living our lives in a certain direction. And that's the direction which ultimately leads to disorder and to death. And that direction is actually the direction of living for self. Is when you make yourself the most important thing in your life. You actually make yourself the master. And life becomes about what you want. Life is about what, how you can express yourself and how you can have that which you think is most important and how you can shape life as you think it should be shaped. And that way is what we've been describing is what ultimately leads to death. We're not living our lives as believers in that direction. We are living our lives into the direction of where self is not on the throne. Self is not the master, but Jesus is on the throne, and Jesus is the master. In this direction, it is in, in the direction of self is, is, let me have my way. In this direction, the direction of, of the believer is to say, Lord Jesus, have your way. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let your rulership be established. Less of me, more of you. And so when I have made that change in my life. I am no longer a slave to serving myself. I am now free to serve the Lord Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about a bit today. And what does that look like? And what does that mean to actually be free to serve Jesus? I want to take us to a very well-known and very familiar portion of Scripture, and that is in John 13. It is this wonderful event where Jesus takes his closest friends, his disciples, his followers, and shortly before he was going to now be crucified, he spends quality time with them. He organizes that there's a special room where they go into and just them, and they're going to spend some alone time having a meal, which the meal we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. But I want us to recognize that this very special event that took place was not just Jesus having a moment with his disciples, being, have, being in community, wanting to spend time with them, but that actually this moment becomes a very important moment where Jesus shares a very big truth with them. And that truth takes place when he washes the disciples' feet. I'm going to read for you John 13, verse 12 to 17. 
which is sort of towards the end of that event, as it's described for us in John. John 13 verse 12 says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. You should do as I have done for you. Very truly, you know, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you may know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus takes this very special moment. He's had a meal with his disciples, and then he does something quite remarkable. He strips himself of some of his clothing. Jesus actually comes into a state of undress, a state that wouldn't be appropriate for a public setting. But in this private moment with his closest friends, he takes off some of his outer garments. And he actually ends up in a space where it's almost like in your underwear. And he wraps a towel around himself and he goes and he washes his disciples' feet. And you and I can imagine this becomes a very intimate, very solemn moment for them. First, a difficult moment for them to, to grasp what's going on. Because in their culture, something's happening here that doesn't feel appropriate. Jesus assuming the position of a servant. Imagine you walked into that room and that occasion and you were afforded an opportunity to see what's going on. But you didn't actually know who Jesus was. You didn't know who was who in the room. If you walked into the room and you saw this man without some of his clothing on, washing the feet of the other men in the room, you would have assumed that that person doing the washing of the feet is the least powerful person in that room. You would have assumed that that is the person that is there solely for the purpose of serving the others in the room. Their reason for existence, their reason for being there is to make the rest of the guests feel comfortable. And therefore it became a, a little bit of a difficult moment. How can Jesus do this for the disciples? And so Jesus washes their feet. But what we've got to be very clear on is what Jesus says after he's done this. He, he's not just doing something kind and good and nice for his disciples. This is actually a teaching moment. You see, so often we as Christians, we wash each other's feet and it becomes a, a, almost a symbolic thing of, of a way to minister to one another. Jesus is not merely ministering to his disciples. He's teaching them. Do you pick it up in his language when he says, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So this moment is not just a tender moment where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. This is actually a moment of modeling. This is a very instructive moment, a, highly, a high moment of teaching. 
where Jesus is taking this opportunity, which is almost like one of his last opportunities to impart kingdom truth to his disciples. And in a very practical way, he's saying to them, I want you to see what I'm doing because you are going to have to do this also. In a sense, what Jesus is doing in these last moments is he's preparing his disciples for what is to come after his death and resurrection. Now, they don't quite understand what's going to happen in the next couple of days, but Jesus fully knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's about to depart from them and leave them ultimately, and he's preparing them. He's, he's saying, in a sense, tag, you're it. I'm out of here, it's now about, it's up to you. And what Jesus is trying to tell them in this moment, and among some other things, is how are you going to change the world after I've gone? Because I've come and done what I'm supposed to do on this earth, and I'm leaving it in your hands. You are going to have to change the world. How are you going to change the world? And he says, this is how you're going to change the world. If you catch what I'm doing in this moment, if you catch what I'm doing with you, then you will repeat it and you will change the world because you will do what I have set you as an example to do. This is how you're going to change the world. Now, I don't know about you, but generally when people talk about how to change the world, they talk about or they assume that you need to have power to change the world. You need to get hold of some power. So throughout mankind's history, and it still goes on today, you would find some person, a leader of some sort, and he or she would gather followers around them, and then they would begin to instruct them in how they think the world should be run, and then they would say to their followers, now I want you to work your way into positions of power so that you can change the world and make the world the way we think the world should be. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Exactly the opposite. Jesus is not with his 12 in that private meeting beginning a secret society. With secret handshakes and rolled up trousers. This is not something like the Bruderbund or the Freemasons. Where Jesus is setting up his followers and he's saying to them, guys... I, I want you to work your way. I want you to become the captains of industry. I want you to become ministers and I want you to become presidents. I want you to assume the positions of power in society so that you can change the world. Jesus is saying to them, if you're going to change the world, you are going to need to assume the position of the powerless ones. Of the ones who are there in the room and everybody thinks you're just there because your job is to serve everybody else. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is doing. This moment is a very difficult reality for his disciples to grasp exactly what he means. But as the days unfold, they would begin to understand it even more, how deeply he means this. But he's saying to them, guys... You're not going to change the world because you're going to become the powerful people in this world. You're going to change the world because you are going to be the servants of this world. You are going to have to unclothe yourself. You are going to have to come into a state of undress like I have undressed myself and removed 
That which makes me look powerful and appears like I'm the one in charge. I have taken all of that off. And I've actually taken on the the dress of a person that looks like they've got no power and influence. This is who I'm calling you to become. A very difficult message to understand. So let's dig into that a little deeper. Paul writes to the Philippians. And he's wanting them to remember this foundational idea. As they are now a couple of decades later being the church and beginning to bump up against the the world around them. And how do they begin to change the world? They are the ones that are now sent to change the world. And, And Paul writes to them in this beautiful section of Philippians 2. And I want to read for us verse 5 to 8. He says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, think about life the way Jesus does. Look at life the way Jesus does. Behave the same as Jesus behaves. See life the way he sees it. Make decisions according to the way Jesus would make decisions. Which is, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A remarkable reminder that Paul gives us here. He says, I want you to recognize, and this is a very important scripture, a couple of scriptures theologically also, because this is one of the scriptures that validates for us this idea that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Jesus was not little less God when he came to earth. He was completely God with the same power, the same authority as he had when he was in heaven. He was fully God. And yet he became fully man. It's a once-off in all of creation. That's why it's hard for us to understand because there's nobody else that is this that we can point to and say Jesus was like that. He's, it's only Jesus. 100% God, 100% man. He walked the earth and had every experience of humanity as we did, yet with the same God-like attributes as he's always had. But one thing he did when he came to earth... While he remained fully God, he let go of the position of God-likeness in terms of this. Before Jesus was born, and tonight we'll celebrate that, you know, a baby in a manger. If you were looking for Jesus, where would you find him? In heaven on a throne. If you had to ask somebody who's in charge of all of creation, they would have pointed to Jesus And the Godhead, the three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Jesus would be on the throne. It would be obvious of his power, his majesty, his lordship, his rulership. But he stepped down from that throne and came to earth. Still God, with all the power and the privileges of that, but he released it and came and walked among us like a human being. Now when he was on earth, it was very easy to mistake him for just another Joe. I'm sorry if your name's Joe. I don't mean that in a slight. Just another regular guy. You know, you would think 
He's just another guy. Because he wasn't, you know, looking like the king anymore. It's like if you had to go to your local supermarket and grocery store and you're walking down the, you know, fresh produce section and there's Mr. Ramaphosa pushing his trolley and with a list, you know, probably written or on his phone and he's like looking for things and it's obvious his wife sent him to the store to go buy some things. There's no blue light brigade. There's no bodyguards. There's nobody around. He's still Mr. Ramaphosa. He's still the president with all the powers and privileges. But in that moment, he's just another husband trying to, conf- trying to figure out a confusing list that his wife sent him to the shop with. Don't you love it when men, don't you love it when your wife says, go to the store, buy mints. And I'm standing in front of the mints and I'm going, how much mints? What is she wanting to make? Is it a kilogram? Is it two kilograms? Is it five kilograms? Amen. Guys, does it ever happen to you? You know, then you try and phone her, but she's not answering. And then you're like, I know I'm going to get this wrong. And the sweat starts dripping down your forehead because you know I'm going to make a mistake. Perhaps he's, you know, Mr. Ramaphosa standing there in front of the, like the section and he, and he looks at you and he says, is this a cabbage or is it a lettuce? <laughs> Any men know what I'm talking about? I've never made that mistake, but I've heard that men that were sent to the store to buy a lettuce has come home with a cabbage. (laughs) Or other such like confusions that happens. But isn't it amazing, no matter how many times we get it wrong, our wife still sends us to the store. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Mr. Ramaphosa in that moment is still president, but he's also just a regular guy trying to You know, do what his wife says he must do. And that's, in a sense, how Jesus, he's still Jesus. But he didn't look like the king of kings. He didn't look like the guy with the captain that was the captain of the armies of the Lord. He assumed a position of humanity. That's what the scripture says. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who did not hold on to his privileges and who did not think that this was too difficult to let go of. You see, Jesus was free to become God on earth because his titles and positions and throne did not define him. He was defined by the freedom to do what pleases the Father. That's what he was free to do. So if that involved leaving everything behind in heaven and coming to earth, And pleasing his father, he was free to do that. Because he wasn't serving two masters, he was serving one master. This is the Trinity. What makes the Trinity work is this continuous, uh, the sacrificial love preferring the other. And Jesus was just living and expressing that. Being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death. Can you see the level of which Jesus unclothed himself of his power? Even allowing that very thing that is the the bottom of the experience of life, the lowest 
thing that you can have in life. The ultimate enemy, the, the force of destruction, which is death, that he even gave death power over him. That's what Jesus did. This Jesus could have come to earth with an army, could have come with a grand plan to establish his rulership, but this Jesus didn't do that. This Jesus came and he allowed the very things that is so far from who he is to have power over him. And this Jesus says, and Paul reinforces the idea, is we must have the same approach to life. Do what I have shown you. Now, I think that the disciples struggled a bit with the depth and the breadth of this message while the feet was being washed. Peter said, you can't wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have got no part of me. So it's like they struggled. I think when the crucifixion happened and when Jesus gave his last breath and, his, and died, I think this message began to hit home a little bit. Don't you think? Don't you think in that moment they went, this is not a nice message. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He said, do you, you do the same. Now he wasn't saying we must die on crosses. He was saying we must give our lives. We are no longer servants of self. We are now servants of Christ. He who loves his life will lose it. He who gives his life will gain it. And Jesus is saying, do as I have done. Let go. Let go of your power. Let go of your presumptions that you will change the world because you have power. Let go of that. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that deeply troubling and disturbing. There's a story in the Old Testament that sort of shows us this way of God's thinking, this attitude of how God thinks the world should be changed. And it's a story that we find in 1 Samuel 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Now, you know how the story goes. The Israelites find themselves in a, in a war against the, the, the Philistines. Oh, yeah, the Philistines. And uh, so the, they are on the one side of a ravine and the Philistines are on the other side of a ravine and they're looking at each other. Because the Philistines have a champion, a guy by the name of Goliath. Now, there's some discrepancy in terms of biblical interpretation as to what his size actually was. Some translations say he was about seven foot tall. Now, where's Jason? Jason, how tall are you? Seven foot. Six, eight. Come stand here next to me quickly. So here's my Goliath. This is my friend Jason. If you mess with me, you get him. Okay. So, so Goliath was at least a little taller than Jason, probably like that. Hey? But it could be that he was a whole nother meter taller than Jason. Nine foot. That's about, you know, a story high. So we don't quite know. He was between this size and like, you know, half of me on top of Jason. You know. Okay. Thank you, Goliath. He was a big fellow. 
But he wasn't just a big fellow, he was a scary fellow. He was a nasty fellow. He had bad breath, at least. He was a strong man. He, he was this guy that stood up every day before the Israelites and taunted them, mocked them, mocked their God, mocked everything about them, probably some racial slurs and stuff going on. You know, he was like, you know, saying to them, come on, you are nothing. And, and, the, and the rulers of the Philistines would say, man, if you, can, if you can kill Goliath, we'll become your servants. They were so confident in this guy. So this guy was powerful, man. And he was parading his power. I mean, his chain mail, you know that stuff that they wear, just that like metal just to protect themselves. His chain mail weighed about 60 kilograms on its own. The head of his, of his spear was about eight kilograms. Now that meant he had quite a bicep if he had to be able to throw that spear. Then, then you had to include his helmet and every, his shield. He probably, just his stuff that he was carrying around was double the size, double the weight of David at least. So he was a big, powerful, scary guy that represented everything that the Philistines was proud of. It was like, this, we are a strong people, nobody's going to mess with us. And you can see it personified in this, our champion, Goliath. And so Goliath, with his bad breath, is shouting at the Israelites, and they're reeling in their tents. The smell of garlic is too much, and they can't handle it, and they're like hiding away. And King Saul says, man, is somebody, come somebody, we've got to do something. We can't stay here forever. Somebody's going to do something. So, on to the story comes David. David's dad sends David with toasted cheese sandwiches to go and help his brothers. It says cheese and bread, so toasted cheese sandwiches. So he goes and he's going to go and look after his brothers. So he gets to this scene and he's like hearing what's going on and he's like, dudes, what's going on? Why? What? Why is nobody dealing with this guy? And they're like, shut up. What are you just a, you're just a teenager. You know, you have nothing to say in this situation. You're just going to get us in trouble. Shut up. But he doesn't shut up. He keeps pestering like, come on people, somebody's got to do something. And so he eventually finds his way to Saul, and Saul knows him because, remember, he used to, whenever Saul got a bit excited about life and demon-possessed, then um, David would play a bit on the harp, and then he'd calm down. So Saul knew him. So David comes to Saul, and he says, listen, I'm prepared to, to go and deal with this guy. Saul goes, okay, well, you're the best I've got. Nobody else has, has decided to step up. Now remember, this is a risk the king's taking because if David loses, what is the deal? Israelite becomes the slaves to the Philistine. So this is not, let's just try it and see if it works. If it doesn't, okay, sorry, David, we're not going home today. You'll be dead. This is a big, but now there's no other option. So the king says, okay. He says, David, but I've got to, I've got to make you look a bit more powerful than what you look. I don't think this shepherd's gear that you've got on with your slingshot hanging out your back pocket is going to scare enough. You can't represent us like that. You need to look a bit more powerful. So what he takes and he says, and the best thing I can do for you is I'll give you my personal armor. You know, KS, King Saul, written on it. It's like my personal armor. And he puts it on David. And David's like, wow, this stuff's big and heavy. Because this is like, remember, Saul was a big guy also. Saul was probably like Jason's size. And, you know, like David's like me. You know, 
Why are you laughing? He's like me. He's just a good guy, you know, just a good-looking, strapping young man. And, uh, and, you know, he's like, David, the Bible says he looked like me. He was ruddy and, go- and, and attractive, you know. So, <laughs> so he's, he's like, he puts, Saul puts his armor on him, and he's like, and Saul says, you know, sword gives him the sword, gives him everything. Because now David has to go and represent the king. He's not going in his own name. He's not going in the name of David, the shepherd. He's going, I'm the king's envoy. I'm the king's champion and the king's warrior. I need to go. And because the thinking is, if you want to overcome the power that Goliath had, the only way you can do that is you have to beat him at his own game and you have to be more powerful than he is. That's the thinking. But David eventually says, I can't do this. So he throws off all the gear. He gets in another state of undress. No powerful garb. Actually just looking like a shepherd boy. Now, I don't know if you, shepherds don't generally wear Armani and Gucci and, you know, high top Nikes when they, they like a little scruffy, a little rough around the edges, a couple of holes in the, in the clothing, smelling a bit. You know, so perhaps this body odor of sheep will counteract the garlic breath and, you know, it's going to be a fantastic thing. But he's like, okay. And then he takes his little slingshot and he puts five stones. Like if it was me, slingshot, like a bag of stones at least. This is five. See? And he goes and stands in front of that Goliath. And what I want you to see when you imagine that picture is just another representation of Jesus standing before the law of sin and death. Jesus, in his state of undress, having taken off all the power, easily mistaken for a, just another regular guy, nothing special about him, goes and faces up to the greatest Goliath there's ever been. And that is the law of sin and death that holds every person captive that has destroyed lives. And instead of clothing himself with might and military power and prowess and looking fearful, Jesus comes and stands before his Goliath and actually doesn't even stand before his Goliath. He hangs before his Goliath by allowing that Goliath to actually kill him and hanging him on a cross. The the absolute picture of powerlessness, there's Jesus. And so it is when David comes and walks in front of Goliath and, he, and Goliath looks at David and he says, what are you doing? Is, are we having a laugh? Are you making a joke? Am I a dog that you would bring such a powerless runt before me? I mean, if you're gonna come against me, at least respect me by bringing somebody that has some power. But now you send me this kid. What are you doing? And he continues to mock and berate and just look down upon God's people. And David, knowing that he's not in that situation because he's more powerful than Goliath, he full well knows that he has no hope against Goliath. But David, again, remarkable, is way ahead of his time. And he says, I'm not coming against you in my name or my power. 
You are an uncircumcised Philistine. In other words, you come in the name of what you think is powerful. Your gods, your self-serving life. You think that's powerful. I come against you in the name of the Lord. And what does that mean, in the name of the Lord? In the name of the Lord is not some magical incantation that David is giving some access to power. And, you know, when he says, in the name of the Lord, and he lifts up his little slingshot, the lightning strikes, and David begins to glow. And suddenly David is seven foot tall, and he's got muscles and abs, and he's like, I am more powerful than you are. No. He's still little David. He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord. What is he saying? I'm coming against you in the same attitude as Jesus would come to overcome the law of sin and death. I come against you in that thinking of everything is about my father. I'm not serving myself. If I die, I die. I'm serving his purposes. And therein lies that which will overcome you. And he swings that thing, and you know the story. They deal with the garlic breath once and forever by chopping off his head. Can you see that? That is how God says we will change the world. Though They will come against us with might and power. But what does the scripture say? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Now, by my spirit, please remember, means God's way of looking at life and thinking and doing, empowered by the spirit. We do not fight a battle against flesh and blood where we will overcome them because we are more powerful than them. We fight a completely different battle. We come from this place of undress. We say, we're going to beat you because we're not going to be like you at all. We're not even fighting the same battle. And our victory doesn't come in our strength. Our victory actually comes in our weakness. Isn't this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12? Therefore, verse 9 and 10, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, when I look weak, the enemy mistakes me. And he thinks that I'm just a nobody, just a regular guy, just another David or another Jesus that's going to be wiped away. But he does not know the power that is in me because of my life is not my own. My life belongs to Jesus. I have just become a conduit for his power. Then if I am weak, he is strong. You see, but we fundamentally struggle with this, even as Christians. We think that we're going to overcome because we're going to be more powerful than the world. That's not what Jesus says. So let me apply this. Just think about your front line. If you don't know what a front line is, we talk about front lines as the place where God places us every day where we are there to advance the kingdom. I think we often miss opportunities on our front lines 
to bring the kingdom of God. You know why we miss them? Because we look for opportunities of power, not for opportunities of service. Because you may be in a front line and, you go, and, and you're saying, you don't know my boss. My boss, you know, he does not allow or she does not give space. And I can't do the kingdom work because I don't have the power in that situation. I'm just powerless. I'm just little old me. I can't do anything. And, you, and then you say, and, but I, pray for me that one day when I have the power, then I will. Let me get the promotion. Let me get the, the job of being the boss. Then I will bring about the changes of God's kingdom. Jesus says, that's not how we work. I'm sending you in. And it is by your servanthood that you will break the strongholds of the enemy. So when when you are just little old me and you're in an environment where there's a stronghold, a Goliath that is roaring and shaming, it's not for you to say, now I'm going to beat this Goliath. It's to say, Lord Jesus, thank you that I'm your servant. Thank you that I'm not, I'm not bound to the spirit of this world, but that I am free to serve you. How do you want me to serve you in this situation, how can my little meaningless actions, remember last week we spoke about how the Christian is not free from the problems of this world, but they are free to find meaning in everything that happens and purpose in this life. And so that when the enemy roars against me, Paul says, I delight in weakness. <laughs> Come on. I delight in weakness. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And this is not a guy talking about it theoretically. I mean, go read his list. Left for dead, shipwrecked, beaten to a pulp. You know, he says, I love, I don't think he really meant like, I love it. He's just saying, man, I love it when the enemy thinks he's powerful. And when he's got me on the floor bleeding, he thinks he's one. But he does not know how the kingdom works. That Greater is he that is in me that is in the world. Now, I know we'd love it to be that the gospel story is that we have power. Nobody can touch us. But we are sent into a broken world. But what we do have is what Jesus has. In Philippians 2 verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Jesus. Now, you know, when Jesus took on the form of a man and let go of his godly status and position, he didn't become less the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He still is the king and kings of the Lord of Lords. And he knew that. That's why it's no problem for him to get undressed and to put on a, a servant's cloak and look like he's the servant because it doesn't change who he really is. He, is. he is completely secure because it's not about himself. It's about the father. And the father has sent his son. So he And the father said, remember when Jesus was baptized, before he did anything, the father said, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Do you know that every day when you get up and you go onto your front line, your father says, you are my beloved son or daughter in who I am well pleased. You have it. You're secure in it. Now you can go and take on whatever 
servant God asks you to be. And you know when we do that, there's something amazing that happens. Because in the kingdom, the, the, the power is not in power as much as it is in authority. It's not about who has the power, it's about who has the authority. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, and he was giving out his last breath, and he was busy dying, that was authority in action. The devil may have thought he killed Jesus because he had power. But you and I know the scripture says Jesus gave up his last breath. Jesus didn't die because the power overcame him. He died because he took authority in that situation. And he did what he knew he should do. You and I can have kingdom authority in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, again, is not some secret word that I attach to a sentence. If you pray in the name of Jesus, so be healed in the name of Jesus. Because I said in the name of Jesus, you must be healed. It's a bit more than that. It's in the very likeness and image and character and attitude of Jesus. So when you and I face these things, we face this world, it's strong men, it's Goliaths. We have authority. We're not concerned about power too much. We're not chasing after power. We will not change this nation because we end up having Christians in all of the top government positions. Now, forgive me, I know some of you are not going to like what I say, but I don't think Jesus meant that the only way the his kingdom can come is if we have Christian presidents or Christians in all seats of government because that's just not what he did. He didn't, he didn't say to one of his disciples, you're going to become Caesar one day. Then you're going to have the power. Of course, to him, it's not really about power. That's the game of the devil. To him, it's about authority. I hesitate to say this, but let me say this. At night when they came into our home and they burgled us, and they took me, they pulled me around, they pushed me wherever they wanted me to go, and they hit me to subdue me and get me to do what they want me to do and so that I wouldn't threaten them, and they left the rest of my family alone. But they, when I went for my counseling afterwards, it was one of the things I struggled with emotionally because I felt powerless in that situation, and I felt like... The thing that was hard for me is not so much only that they came and did this to me, but that I allowed them to do this to me. In that moment, I had to make a decision to say, I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to try and overpower you because that's just not going to help and it's going to put my family in danger. So not only did somebody come and take my power away from me, I actually willingly gave it to them. And that was hard for me. I felt powerless. I felt like, you know, you want to do something. but like. And so when I went for my first session of my debriefing and counseling, my counselor said to him, you must always remember the difference between authority and power. In that moment, you gave power, but you kept authority. Because you decided what you will do in that moment. And you did not let them make you do what they wanted to do, make you do or in terms of your inner response and in terms of your, um, you know, putting your family at risk. And even afterwards, 
when, when I was now trying to, had to come to terms with what happened, I decided I will not hate anybody. I will not allow them to take away from me that which is what I believe to be kingdom truth. And that's authority. And so now when I experience it, it's quite amazing for me. I pray for our nation. And I pray particularly in this area of the lawlessness and the crime in our nation. There's something of a new authority that I feel as I pray for that. Because I'm praying from a place of authority. Because in that moment, I surrendered. Now, I don't know what the devil wants to do. And I'm, I'm not confused. It wasn't God's idea. It wasn't God's plan for us. It wasn't God's will. God didn't make those men come into our house to teach us something or something to happen. But I know I live in a world that has Goliaths. And I'm going to have to face them every now and then. And that was one of my Goliaths that I had to face. And I could say, okay. In that moment, I, as I processed later, I actually realized, man... In some sense, I tasted a little bit of what Jesus experienced when he was hanging on the cross. Saying, come on, you can, you can take my life. Have your way with me. I know the authority that I have. Won't you stand with me? You are free to serve. I... That may mean that God gives you power. That may mean that God makes you a minister or a president or makes you a captain of industry. That may mean all of that. That's great. If that's what God wants to do, he's done it many times, gives people real power. But you know, kingdom servants are never about trying to get the power. Because I'm free from being enslaved to my desires, my need for recognition, my need for power, my need to have my way. I'm free from that. I'm free to say, Lord, whatever you want for me, I'm going to serve you in that. And that brings tremendous freedom. That brings, you know, to be in a position where you can actually do what God calls you to do. It's like phenomenal. And that's what Jesus said. I've come that you may have life and life in abundance. So I want to pray something, but in a sense, the worst thing I believe anybody can do after this message today is just go, oh, that was a nice message. This, should, this message should cause you to have questions. It should stir you to be a bit uncomfortable about certain things. It should cause you to go, I don't know, if it, if it, can it really be that? Because that's your responsibility. That's your journey to go to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you asking of me? And this is not a do message. This is a message of freedom. And it's a, it's a difficult thing to describe until you've experienced it. And you have experienced it partly. And the Lord wants to lead you further. So can I pray just a prayer to say, Lord Jesus, we want to walk in your authority. I believe God's called this church and this community to be a community of authority. In this nation, in the capital of this nation, God has called us to have authority. But that authority is established on the other side of surrender, sacrifice, submission. Not because we grab for power. Not because we want to be the voice of God to the nation. But because we prepared to say on my front line, Lord, I'm there. I'm serving you. 
So let's pray. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for every saint, every believer here today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your blessing, Lord. Lord, I pray that these thoughts, that in some way by, your, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will speak very deeply to our hearts in Jesus' name. That something will stir in our innermost being, in our deeper places. That we might, like the disciples, feel like you are washing our feet. Come, Holy Spirit. Forgive us, Lord, for places where we seek power. And I know that in my own life. It's so deceptive. I, I so do that all the time. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us. Help us to be free, Lord, to serve you. To be free to be the servants of Christ. That will change this world. And I pray for every believer on their front line. That they would be not fighting flesh and blood, but standing in the spirit of authority. And I, I trust you for that, for a new authority over every believer, a new authority over this kingdom, oh, this, this community, this congregation of ours. Come, Holy Spirit, and take us even deeper into the authority that will shake the very foundations of the kingdom of hell on earth. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. We'll see you tonight. Come nice and early. We're going to have a great time. If you need prayer this morning, please come to the front. There will be people that will pray for you. Remember to meet Lena in the Collect Lounge if you want to find out about more about the church. And see you at Christmas celebration.